Good morning. We've got two Old Testament um, Bible readings now that are going to introduce us to this character of Melchizedek, who we will see more of later on in Hebrews. So they're in Genesis 14, which is on page 10 of the Church Bibles, and Psalm 110, which is on page 509. So we're going to read to start with Genesis 14, verses 17 to 20. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavar, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And then we're going to read Psalm 110, which is on page 509. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Our second reading this morning is from Hebrews chapter 7, reading from verses 1 to 19, and that could be found on page 1004 of the church Bibles that you received when you came in. The Priestly Order of Melchizedek. For this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. 
It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Thank you, Jane, for thank you, Jane, for reading for us, and for Kath for reading uh, before um, Melchizedek. Did you know that's what you're coming to this morning? Uh, let's pray for the Lord's help as we look at this this passage. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, we believe that the word that you have given us is your word to us, that you speak to us as it's read, and as we talk about it together. And so we pray, Lord God, that you would open up our hearts that we might hear what you say today and be glad and worship and obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wonder if anyone knows who Peter Lodge is. My guess is that many of you don't know who he is, but if you've ever been to London, most of you will have heard his voice. He's the original Mind the Gap guy. So in the 60s, the London Underground wanted to make it safer for its passengers. And the problem was that the tube trains were all dead straight, but the platforms were often curved. And so what happened is there was the big gap between the platform and the train, and that distance had to be safely crossed, and they found that it wasn't being safely crossed. And so in the push of the crowds, you couldn't really look down, you couldn't see there was a gap and people kept falling in it, hence Mind the Gap being announced over the tannoy as the station uh, as it comes into sight. It's a sort of classically British under, understated way of saying danger of certain death and <laughs> be careful. 
Now, when it comes to understanding the Bible, there are sometimes things that we really easily understand, things uh, where we can make the crossing between the train of our world and the platform of the Bible and back again with no real problem at all. We can understand certain concepts or ideas that relate to Jesus in particular, well, because they're really close to what we've experienced in our own lives or in the culture uh, that we come from. The gap is pretty small. So just an example of that is Jesus as king. See, we live in a kingdom, we have a monarchy, um, even if perhaps we don't uh, want that all the time. Uh, And even though it's not as prominent as it once was, we have a history of kings in our country. And so therefore, we have very little uh, trouble in understanding uh, the concepts like the power and the majesty and the rule of a king. The gap's small. Because of our historical context of kingship, we just sort of get Jesus as king. We know a king rules over us. We know a king represents us. And we know that a king fights against our enemies. We get that from our sort of historical understanding. So Jesus is king. That's a bit like the Elizabeth line they've just built in London. Uh, The train is very close uh, to the platform. There's very little effort involved for us to understand uh, uh, and cross that gap. But sometimes the gap is huge. And the section of Hebrews that we're in, chapters 4 to 10, is a great example of that. And you may have felt that. So when was the last time that you thought of Jesus as your priest? Has it ever crossed your mind at all that Jesus is your priest, the priest that you need? So I don't really think about it very much. I think of him as my saviour and as my friend and as my lord and as my king, but not so much as my priest. It turns out as I read Hebrews that I find there's a pretty big gap to be crossed in my understanding. Of course, it might be that some here in the room today, you may have slightly, a slightly smaller gap to cross uh, than me. Some of you may have come from Catholic backgrounds or from Hindu backgrounds, for example. And there's at least in those cultures some concept of priesthood, um, even though it will be pretty different to what the Bible uh, describes, but at least some understanding of of why a priest is needed, some sense of that being important at least. Now, if that's you, to you I'd just say, look, let the Bible address your understanding. Let it correct it where it's needed. It's going to be different. And let it show you, let the writer show you that Jesus is a superior kind of priest to any you've ever encountered before. For most of us, though, I think we're going to have to try and cross the gap uh, this morning. Now, you might say, well, look, does this priest idea, does it really matter? You know, after all, I've got along pretty well in the Christian life so far, and I've hardly ever thought about this. Well, yes, it does matter. The writer to the Hebrews is serious with us that it is a problem if we don't understand Jesus' priesthood. He's told us in chapter 6 that it is going to be solid food for the mature. He wants us to really understand that we need a priest, we need a priest like Jesus, and that Jesus is the only priest that we need. He thinks that's critical for us. And he's told us that without getting that, we may struggle to endure the journey 
through the wilderness and make it to the end. Us seeing Jesus as our priest is essential to us making it to God's rest. That's what we're being told. So we need to know this. It's solid food. And are we hungry? Well, let's look at the passage this morning. The structure of the passage is there on the back of the service sheet. It really helped me to have the Bible open. Here we're going to see, first of all, the existence of an unusual priest king, then the greatness of this unusual priest king, and then the arising of an even greater priest king. So first of all, verse 1 to 3, the existence of an unusual priest king. If I, if I asked you to uh, choose an Old Testament passage that pointed to Jesus, uh, what would you go for? Well, maybe Abraham and the almost sacrifice of Isaac, that would be a good start. How about Passover? Yeah, the Passover lamb, that's a good one. How about the covenant with King David that, that God promised a son that would sit on the throne forever? Or the servant song of Isaiah 52? Or the son of man visions in Daniel? Yeah, they're all good places to go, clearly pointing us to Jesus Christ. But I bet none of you would go to Genesis 14. Who thought, oh, Melchizedek, there's a really clear example of pointing us to Jesus. But verse 1, for this Melchizedek, he's mentioned him twice before, and now we get to know him. It's a hard word to even say uh, without stumbling. We can look at a name like that and we can automatically be put off and think, well, I don't know if this is going to have any relevance uh, for me. But our writer thinks we need to have a look at this guy from Genesis 14 to get a full picture of who Jesus is. It seems a bit random, but there is a logic to it, and I want to try and show you the logical steps that he's making. And the first is that the reason he goes back to Genesis 14 to this guy is because he's been thinking about Psalm 110. So here's the chain of thought. Hebrews writer has been thinking about Psalm 110, which mentions Genesis 14. So Psalm 110, we read it earlier. Psalm of David, it's a prophetic psalm. It's all about a greater uh, king who will come, except for one verse, verse 4. Verse 4 surprisingly mentions that this king who will come is also a priest, a priest forever. Now here's part of the gap. That's a big shock. Because in Jewish law, kings and priests had to come from different tribes. Kings came from Judah, David's line, and priests came from the tribe of Levi. You weren't allowed to do both jobs. In fact, King Saul, David's predecessor, he tried to do both by making sacrifices, and he lost his kingdom because of it. And King Uzziah, who's one of David's um, uh, descendants... He tried to burn incense in the temple once, and that was a priest's job, and he got punished with leprosy for doing so. So you can, have, you can have priests and you can have kings, but you can't be both. You can't be priest king. But Psalm 110 says that the Messiah will be both, a king to rule and defeat the enemies, but also a priest. And so you read that and you go, well, how can that be? How is this possible? 
And the answer is that he's a priest of a different order, of the order of Melchizedek, the Genesis 14 guy. So do you see the chain? Hebrews writer looks back at Psalm 110. Psalm 110 writer David looks back at Genesis 14, which is the story of Melchizedek and Abraham. That's the chain of thought. And our author now seeks to explain to us how that all fits together and how it points us to Jesus as our priest king. So let's read verse 1 to 3. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter, excuse me, <coughs> from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He's first by translation of his name king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So our writer's interpreting for us the events of Genesis 14. There's been a battle, a battle against an alliance of kings, And Abraham wins that battle, and he returns home with the spoils of war. And as he does, a strange figure comes to meet him, Melchizedek. What do we learn about him? Well, first of all, that he's a real historic figure. He's king of Salem. That's probably the town that will become Jerusalem. And that may be why David notices him from Psalm 110, because he's just become king of Jerusalem. He's king of Salem, but he's also a priest. He's the first priest to appear in the Bible. He's a priest of God Most High. That's the true God, the God that Abraham worships. And when Melchizedek meets Abraham, he brings him refreshment, bread and wine. He blesses Abraham. That is, he prays to God to bless him. And Abraham, in turn, honors Melchizedek by giving him a tenth of the spoils. That's what happens in the Genesis story. But our writer wants us to see more. He says his name is significant in Hebrew. He is king, Melchi, of righteousness, Zedek. And Salem, like Shalom, means peace. So he's the king of righteousness and peace. And he just sort of appears and then disappears in the Genesis story. That's very unusual in Genesis. All the significant characters have their ancestry outlined, at least all the good guys. We know who their fathers are and we know who their sons are, but not this guy. We're not told when he's born. We're not told when he dies, unlike the others in Genesis. And we're not told that his priesthood is handed over to someone else to his son or whoever follows him, which again is very unusual. Now this man isn't a divine figure, I don't think. Some people have suggested that, but he's just a man. That's how Hebrews speaks about him. But the way that he's written about has so many similarities to the Son of God that we can't help but think he resembles him, verse 3. It's like God has placed him in Genesis 14 as a prototype for the real thing later on. He's like a miniature scale model 
of the final amazing person of Jesus. Notice, though, at the end of verse 3, that it's particularly his priesthood that intrigues our writer and which intrigued David before him. That's the note on which the description ends in verse 3, and which is picked up in the psalm. The king of righteousness and peace is also a priest. And it's like he's a priest forever, because in the text of Genesis, he never dies and he's never succeeded Could the existence of this priest-king in the distant past help us to understand the priesthood of Jesus in the present? Our author thinks so. However, before he makes that connection to Jesus, there's one more step in the logic that needs to be made. And that's our second point this morning. It's the greatness of this unusual priest-king. Uh, which he now explains in verse 4 to 10. Verse 4. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. See how great he is. This priest king is so great that even Abraham, the greatest man in the Jewish history, the father of all the Jews, including all the Levitical priests, even Abraham honours him by tithing towards him. The main point he makes in verse 5 to 10 is that the Levites, the priests who would come later, they got tithes from the people But the father of all the Levites tithes up to Melchizedek. So Melchizedek must be therefore superior to both. That's the main plank of his argument to show the greatness of this priest king, that the tithes go up to him from the Jewish priestly line. Plank two is that blessing comes down from Melchizedek. This is verse 7. See, in Genesis, the blessing always came from the superior to the inferior. We don't tend to think like this, but in that culture, the father had more honor than the son. So Abraham, the greatest, blesses Isaac, and Isaac blesses Jacob, and Jacob blesses his 12 sons. That was sort of understood, that blessing came down. And so in Genesis 14, Melchizedek blesses Abraham, and therefore he must be the superior figure in spiritual matters. Melchizedek, the priest king, is greater than Abraham. How do we know? Well, because tithes travel in that direction up to him, and blessing travels in that direction. It came down from him. The next step to make is this, that because Melchizedek is Abraham's superior, he must also be superior to the Levitical priesthood. In the first instance, because they're mortal, verse 8, their priesthood passes on down the generations when they die. But this guy's priesthood, at least as far as the text says, it never ends. He's never succeeded by another. He lives. In the second instance, it's because they come from Abraham and were, in a sense, seminally present in Abraham. This is verse 9 and 10, and it's a bit weird. What's going on, I think, is that ancient peoples believed that they were bound up 
with their forefathers. What their forefathers did was, in a sense, what they had done. And we're far more individualistic than that in our culture. I was trying to think of an example to explain this. It's a little bit flawed, but bear with me. This representative idea does sometimes occur for us. So, for example, when England win the World Cup in a few weeks' time, I don't know why you're laughing at that, um, I will find myself saying, we won the World Cup. But I personally had nothing really to do with that at all, did I? My representatives have done it for me. And there's a sense in which me and my countrymen have achieved it through them. Now, it's not a perfect analogy because in the passage we're talking about ancestors, not contemporaries. But our author seems to think that Abraham represented his priestly descendants in his acknowledgement that Melchizedek was greater than he. So the Levite priests, the descendants of Abraham, could say, we paid tithes to Melchizedek. It was as if the Levites recognized Melchizedek's superior priesthood. That's the point. He has the greater priesthoods. Now these are, these are complex things, it's solid food for the mature, isn't it? And I said, as I said, there's a significant cultural and historical gap um, for us to cross. If it's all been a bit of a blur, let's just come back to the main things. There is an unusual priest-king who existed and who looked a lot like the Son of God. And he wasn't insignificant, he was great. Abraham, the greatest of the Jewish people, thought that he was greater than he himself. And so, therefore, he must be greater than any of the other kind of priests who came later. So this is the big thing that our author has been building to. The Bible has been preparing us for someone he is a superior kind of priest, a priest-king, in fact. Melchizedek is a prototype of the promised one, of the Messiah. And David recognised this in Psalm 110, and our author wants us to see it too. A great king is coming, says David, and God says that he will be a priest forever, like Melchizedek. How can it be possible that he's a priest-king? Well, because he's of a different order. He's not the Levitical order, but the Melchizedekian order. That brings us uh, on to our final point this morning, verse 11 to 19. The arising of an even greater priest-king. Now, verse 11 asks a question, doesn't it? Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? That's the Levites. His point here is that the sequence really matters. When did David write his psalm? Well, he wrote it long after the law had been given, and long after the Levitical priesthood had been established, about 500 years after, in fact. 
And when David writes that, he thinks that we need another kind of priest. And it must be, therefore, that the Levitical priesthood was not able to do for us what we really needed. It couldn't make us perfect, verse 11. See, the priesthood and the law, they were inextricably linked. The the priests were appointed according to the law. Uh, The priests taught the law to the people. That was their job. The priests administered sacrifices when the law was broken, and they did that according to the regulations of the law. It was all a package deal. But David knew, and our writer picks up, that the package of the law and the priesthood, the old covenant, was unable to make us perfect. That the priesthood, even with the sacrifices, couldn't make us perfect. And we needed to be perfect to draw near to God. God, the perfect, holy God. The Levitical priesthood couldn't cut it. And it's as if David realises this and then realises that there's another kind of priesthood that exists, another order of priest, and that this priesthood might make the difference for us. David prophesies that the king to come would be this kind of priest. And our author makes the link that if there's a change to to a new superior kind of priesthood, I have a priest king from Judah, not Levi, verse 13 and 14. Then perhaps there must also be a superior kind of covenant, one which might actually make us perfect in God's sight. And that's exactly what happens with the arising of Jesus Christ. We read verse 15 to 19. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. See that again there. But on the other hand... A better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. You see, one has arisen like Melchizedek, a man who is not a priest because he's of the tribe of Levi. He can't be that because he's from the tribe of Judah. One who's become a priest of this different order, how? Well, by the power of an indestructible life. Jesus the King has gone through death and risen to new life and has now been appointed by God as an eternal priest, a priest forever whose ministry will never come to an end, the priest that we really need. Now I told you at the beginning that there's a gap here for most of us to cross. We don't think about priesthood at all. Um, let, let alone know why we need one. But the Hebrews, they didn't have that gap. They knew full well that they needed a priest, and they were tempted to go from Jesus back to the old Jewish Levitical priesthood. And they could have done, when this is written, there was a high priest in the Jerusalem temple. They were tempted by the security 
of seeing someone make sacrifices for them, of having a visible person teaching them God's law, helping them to obey it, praying for them, pleading their case before God when they break it. But that would be to choose the inferior. It would be to choose something rendered weak and useless, as verse 18 puts it. Weak and useless in comparison to the better hope that there is in Jesus. Jesus is the priest we really need. Why? Because by him we can be made perfect and therefore can finally draw near to God. That's why we need a priest, so that we can draw near to God. The rest of chapter 7 and chapters 8 to 10 are going to unpack how he enables that to happen. As we close, let me just whet your appetite with what we're going to see. In this priest, King Jesus, here is one who has offered perfect sacrifice for us once for all. Here is a priest who never needs to offer sacrifice for himself because he never sinned. Here is one who is sat down at the right hand of the Father, forever in his presence, helping us by interceding for us. Here is one who will never die, but whoever lives and pleads for me. Here's Jesus, our perfect and permanent priest, who knows us in our weakness and our sin, who empathises with our suffering, who preaches forgiveness to us and can actually change our hearts, who can make us perfect and assures us of our free access to God. Here's our better hope through which we can draw near to God. So may we never look for another. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come to a passage like this, we, um, we recognise our, our struggle to understand. Uh, some of the concepts are different to us, strange to us. And so, Lord, we thank you for your, your Spirit's help as we've looked at this this morning. And we pray that as we go over the course of this week, you will continue to teach us of these things, that we may come to fully grasp just who Jesus is in his priesthood, that all he has done for us to enable us to draw near to you. We thank you that we have this priest, and we pray, Lord, that we'd come to grasp him and understand his priesthood more and more. In Jesus' name. Amen.